Good morning again. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, for those of you visiting our church, I am uh, the second teaching pastor, and about once a month, at some time during the month, I have the privilege of being here and opening the text for you when Pastor Rob is either other out of town or we figure I'd just do it better than he would. Uh, I don't think he's here. That's why I could say that. He's an awfully good preacher. But it's my joy to be able to serve in this capacity alongside and underneath him. I've really been waiting to get my teeth into David, though, this uh, life of David. Right after I became a follower of Jesus in my late teens, I was introduced to David. And from the very beginning, David became a, a hero and a leader to me. One of the things about David, as Pastor Rob has said, we have more material on David and his life than we do anyone else except Jesus. It's a vast amount of material. Plus, it starts when he's like 17 or 18 years of age all the way to when he is 70. And so you're hearing about the journey of this man who seeks God despite being a broken, fractured person himself all the way through. Uh, I, I remember at age 22, I began to seek God the way that I read that David sought God. And now at age 62, I'm hoping I can end well as David sought to end well. And so I, I hope you find in him a companion along the way. He certainly is for me. Now he will, of course, point to his greater son. And he doesn't even know it, but he starts to prophesy, writing about one that will be greater than him, and that will be Jesus. We actually take up David's life today at the end of it, his final words. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to 2 Samuel Chapter 23. Second Samuel, chapter 23. I believe we have the page number for you on the screen if you're using one of our Bibles there behind you. Look with me at chapter 23 and the first line. These are the last words of David. What he's going to say in this chapter is going to be him looking back at some of what God did in his own life and in the work of the nation that he was building. Then right after that, go to verse 8, because most of the chapter is focusing on the military might that he built. I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but we're talking about war today, and we're talking about the building of an army. David, this young boy who slays Goliath, will, by the time he really starts to organize the kingdom, have a standing army of 350,000 people. In this chapter, you start hearing about the superstars of the military. And so you see in verse 8, you've got Josheb, Bathhebeth. He takes his spear against 800 person that he kills in one encounter. That's crazy. Look underneath him, Eleazar wasn't quite as good, only 300. So you, you kind of see the level that he's talking about here. You see the name Josheb, you see Eleazar. In verse 11, you see Shammah. In verse 18, you see Abishai. Then in verse 20, you see Beniah. Those five were really the major, major type warriors, the avengers of Israel, if you will. But then underneath them, starting in verse 24, look at all those names. Ashael, Elhelan, Shammah, I don't know him, 
Helez, don't know him. Ira, don't know him. Abiezer, don't know him. Zalman, don't know him. And he's got over 30 people that he lists there. And we don't know a single thing about hardly any of them. And that's really good news, I think. The Bible is full of lists of people that we don't know anything about. You know what that says to me? We might not know about them, but evidently God does, or their names wouldn't be there. There's no one that isn't important to God, and the lists signify that. Truth be told, even those first five, the names that I gave you and the 30 underneath them, they were kind of a ragtag gathering of misfits. Want to see how they first came together? Look at 1 Samuel 22. David is maybe 20 years old at this time. It says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. So his family gathers to him. This is a massive cave. We'll show you a picture in a while. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So once again, as we've got on a separate slide, they were in distress, they were in debt, and they were disillusioned or discontented. I just know that slide's coming up. <laughs> yes! And they weren't patient. <laughs> the reason I put those words up there is to show you that while you hear about their exploits and their mightiness and all of this sort of stuff, they were just broken down people in the same way that David was at this time. And when he was in his early 20s, he is fleeing for his life and he lives in a cave. I kind of think of these people as the island of misfit toys. Quoting from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, 30-minute special on CBS every Christmas season. Or better yet, maybe they are the guardians of the galaxy. How many of you saw that? crazy film, fun film, thoroughly broken, not put together souls that get shaped into something great. Well, that's what God wants to do in us too. So when you look at David's mighty men, don't think they were always mighty. They were pretty messed up, just like me and you. All right. Now, we got to deal straight on with this war thing, however. War. David lives in context of perpetual national war it's wartime and this dear guy who was a shepherd in the field who suddenly gets catapulted to leadership will be fighting till almost the time that he dies he'll be building a nation the people that had really come against them were called the philistines and the philistines were from crete and the greek isles they are a seafaring people kind of like the Vikings that we hear about coming into the British Isles. So think of them as like Vikings, massive warriors, large. Goliath was one of them, etc., etc., etc. And they gather together, and they are going to try to push God's people out of the land God gave to his people. They come in on the sea. They form five cities right along the coast of Israel. And they are technological giants as well. They developed iron weapons. And at that time, Israel didn't have weapons made out of iron. The Philistines did. 
So they are a major, major challenge. When you see the exploits of these that fight them and hear the stories, they are fighting a massive, dangerous, occupational force that's intent upon their destruction in order to take over their land. I wish it wasn't so. It was. I wish it wasn't so today. It is. The reason I'm taking a few minutes on this is we live in the world of a brand new acronym that we didn't even know we had two years ago called ISIS or ISIL. And that is an organization of people that's forming a mighty army to enforce a new civilization in a part of the world. But here's the question. It kind of looks like God is into that stuff. All of this chapter, and I can take you to others in the David story and saga, they're exploits of war. They're, they're descriptions of violence. Is this God's way of getting his truth to the world through, through violence? One wonders, if you stopped at David's life, you would think perhaps, but maybe not. I'm going to put another scripture on the screen here, and let me show you what happens. This is toward the end of David's life. And his great desire was not to carry out war. His great desire was to build a kingdom of spiritual peace. And the way he was going to do that is he wanted to build this great temple of God in Jerusalem. Here's what happens. David called for his son Solomon. And he charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel, and David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood, David. You have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, God led him into these wars. This had to happen where vile evil produces violence and seeks to destroy. God will raise up armies to come back and to stop it. It wouldn't have been David's choice for what he was to do with his life, but it had to be done. Still, at the end, David's great desire was a kingdom of peace. The name Solomon, his son, means peace. And Solomon will build the great spiritual temple. David didn't get to. He had to do war. Now, sometimes war is just. I believe it was in the time of David. And, and, and I believe what has to happen in the Middle East is going to have to happen because of vile evil that pro provokes and promotes deadly violence. At times, force has to be met with force. But you know what David's heart really was? Peace. And it's the same with our Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater son. Move a thousand years further toward us from David and you come to Jesus. And look what Jesus says about enemies and violence. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, 
love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So Jesus takes it to a whole new level. He is not saying there can't ever be war. Sometimes there just has to be war. But he's really arguing for moving to a different kind of war. May we dare to call it a holy war? But don't think of it as bombs and F-22s. Think of it as truth and love, the weapons of God's holy war. Look now to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 4 and 5. For though we live in this world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Have you ever heard of the Great Crusades? The Great Crusades? It's a miserable, sad time in world history. Circa 1000 A.D. They went on for a couple hundred years. And warriors from Europe flooded down into the Middle East in the name of a Christian God to take back the Middle East from Islamic power and control. There was viciousness and inhumanity on both sides. Horrendous. One won for a while. The other would win after that. And at the end, there was just death and misery everywhere. At the end of the last crusade, a man by the name of St. Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, walked to the Middle East with no weapons to meet with the head of the Islamic civilization. And he simply said, can we not have peace now? And a period of peace followed. That's what Jesus is getting at. Yeah. So we are to wield holy war. And the weapons of our warfare are strong. They demolish strongholds. And they are two things. They are the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ going everywhere. So I want to bridge now off David's mighty men with those hard-to-pronounce names. And I want to tell you about some of God's mighty warriors in today's world, women and men. See, I just had the privilege of being with three of our fellow pastors, and we just went on an exploration mission to the Middle East because we've sensed God is asking us as a church to do more in the Middle East to bring the gospel of Christ. Incidentally, when you think of all in and giving, you're allowing us to go to new places to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want to tell you three brief stories of some mighty, mighty heroes of God who bring truth and love. There she is. She's the first one. I can't give you her real name, and please don't take her picture. And if you have people listen to this afterwards or watch it online, the pictures will be blurred and you can imagine why. She and her family were Syrians, Syrian Muslims. Uh, they are Shias. And ISIS is not only seeking to destroy Christians, it's also destroying Shia Muslims. For uh, ISIS is primarily Sunni Muslims. She and her husband and three children, they owned a factory. They were you know, pretty wealthy in Syria. They had to flee with only the clothes on their backs. And they came into Lebanon. And when they got to Lebanon, 
They moved into the tent cities. And when they got to Lebanon, they heard of a Christian church that was giving food to refugees. Incidentally, part of what you give in our church is part of her food because the ministry we're with is one that we support. Okay? So she goes to the church to get the food and she listens to the sermon. And she had never heard the story of Esau. Esau is the Arabic for Jesus. She had never heard about his love. And she was told in that sermon that Jesus is the one who comes to give you what you do not deserve and to forgive you for everything you've done. She was so smitten after one message that she submitted her life to Esau. And then she went home and she told her husband and three children. And by this time, they were able to live in, move into a one-room apartment. Next picture. There they are. You see her on the left. You see the joy inside of her. That's the room we were all sitting in. Incidentally, before we could actually start talking about God, we had to close the windows and the shades because of the danger, even in that part of, of Lebanon. And then they started telling us about Jesus. And he told us about Jesus. And we're going to call him Nicholas. And we're going to call her Angela. And that's their three children. She came down with a bad uh, illness. Large kidney stones. They took her to the hospital. And the hospital took x-rays. And they said, yes, take these medicines. Hopefully it'll take care of it. Didn't take care of it. It got worse and worse and worse. And then the pastor comes to her. And the pastor says, can we pray for you? Because you're going to go into surgery. And they're going to have to remove these. But let's pray. And so he prayed over her. And he prayed for healing. And she felt instantaneously better. And she went to the doctors and said, I don't need your surgery. And they said, yes, you do. She says, I will not take your surgery. You take another x-ray. And of course, the truth of the x-ray showed no more kidney stones. She'd been instantaneously healed by Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now go with me from this great lady who is telling people about Jesus everywhere. Go with me now to see a man. We're going to call him King Henry the 800th, okay? That's not his real name, but here's why I call him the 800th. Because this is an Iraqi man who was a teacher of Sharia Muslim law in Iraq. Searcher for truth. He had 800 disciples. And he was looking for truth. And one day in a vision, Esau appeared to him. Arabic for? Jesus. Right. <laughs> 17 days in a row, Isa appeared to him and spoke to him about what is true and right and that he is the Savior of the world. It got so specific in those 17 days that he started leading Henry to the New Testament and told him where to look to receive what he wanted him to know on that day. And, of course, Henry crossed over and has become a full-blown apostolic warrior for Jesus Christ. He was so dangerous in Iraq as a Christian that both a Shia cleric and a Sunni cleric both declared fatwa on him, which means kill him. Christians whisked him out of Iraq into Lebanon 
where he has now led 41 former Muslims to Jesus Christ, started a church, runs a clothing center, and is doing what we call Skypalship. His dream is that all 800 of his disciples who follow Islamic law will find Isa. His life is in jeopardy at any time. Death warrants out for him. Nothing stops him. Before we left, he looked right into my cell phone when I was running a video, and he says, you tell the Americans this. Now is the time for Jesus in the Middle East. We believed him. Yeah. Number three. There he is. We move now to Israel. That's not a snake he's holding. That's a shofar. Oh, you know those things that the Jewish people blow? Really weird. But, you know. And I'm calling him King David. Not his real name, but he's like King David because he leads a movement of what we call messianic believers. He knows Jesus and he's a Jew. There are 6.2 million Jews in Israel alone. We estimate there are between five and 10,000 who know Jesus as Messiah. That's all. Five to 10,000. And Jewish Christians in Israel are persecuted by three different forms of, of Jewishness. They are persecuted by the Orthodox, the guys that have the curls and the big hats. They are persecuted by the nationalists, that believe only in Jerusalem and Zion at all costs, kind of hyper-patriotism. And they are even persecuted by the secularists who don't believe in any God at all. They're a small, small minority, but it doesn't stop them. They're online. They stand on street corners. They offer every Jew they can meet the story that says the Messiah has already come. Well... These are just a snapshot of God's mighty army. Incidentally, next Sunday you're going to hear more because as we move into our missions fest now, of which I'm kind of the appetizer, okay, we are bringing in David Garrison, who knows more than anybody on planet Earth about the places where God is moving in this kind of power. He's going to talk on Sunday morning. He's going to come back and talk on Sunday night. You're about to hear things that are going to take your breath away. That's why we title Missions Fest, Be Amazed. Get ready. Now, what did I come back with? Well, I came back with places where God wants us to be involved. But more, we all came back saying, we were with some of the mighty ones in whom is all God's delight. Oh, God, make me mighty like that. Climb over my fears. Make me stand for you no matter what. Make me sacrifice whatever is necessary. You know what the woman said that I showed you? She said, in the end, I am glad for the war. And I am glad we had to flee. And I'm glad we are refugees. If I hadn't come here, I wouldn't have heard about Esau. Okay? Esau, Jesus in the Arabic. Yeshua, Jesus, to the Jews. God loves them all. Amen? All right. So, what am I saying? We're all to be in a holy war. We're all to be in a godly war. Uh, here's one way for you to start, incidentally. I brought this up 
Did you see these out in the lobbies and stuff when you came in? Simple little way for us to start out a missions fest. Food pack. Make it into a box. Fill it with food. Bring it back. In the next two Sundays, we are literally going to give, we hope, a thousand families needy food that live right in our DuPage County area. Okay? Take one or take two. Take five. Take ten. All right. Okay. Now, watch my transition here. Those of you that want to learn how to preach, you're always looking for a seamless transition to the next point. Sermon two. (laughs) Not so clear. Pretty clear, but not seamless. But here's the point. One of these stories from that chapter of David has to be told. So keep everything I told you about being God's mighty army And now, go with me back to the text, chapter 23, 2 Samuel, verse 13. This is amazing. It's a completely different idea, and it's amazing. Verse 13, during harvest time, three of the chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, the cave, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. Now, let me show you these caves. These are the kind of caves that are made out of the sandstone and the limestone in the Jordan Valley. That's a walking path through it. You can tell that hundreds, if not thousands, of people could be in a cave like that. When I read to you earlier about 400 coming to David and all of his family, it's in a cave just like this. That's where they're at. Okay, that's your setting. Outside the cave, Saul is pursuing David. Outside the cave, the Philistines are spreading throughout the nation seeking to conquer all of Israel. There is fighting on the right. There is fighting on the left. And David is in the cave. And look what he says. Verse 15. David longed for water. And he said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Stop right there. We'll pick it up in a second. Oh, I just long for water from the well at the gate of the town of where I grew up. Remember that? David's from Bethlehem. What's it like for David to be stuck in that cave knowing that his town is being overrun by the Philistine army? He's undoubtedly remembering being a boy. He's remembering mom and dad. He's remembering gathering with kids at the well to get the water. This is a... 22 or 3 year old guy at this time and everything in his body was saying why do I have to be stuck in this cave why is my own king out to kill me why are the Philistines conquering our land it is not a good time and nostalgia and longing for a time of peace is the absolute appropriate thing for a human to feel at times like this and I think that's what's going on and he says oh Guys, you just can't believe how good the water is from the well in my hometown. My little town, I grew up believing God keeps his eye 
on us all. Yeah. Well, look what happens. Three of his warriors take him seriously. Verse 16. So the three mighty warriors break through the Philistine lines, draw water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem, and they carry it back to David. Let me put this setting in context. We estimate that from the cave of Abdullam to Bethlehem was 12 and a half miles. And Philistines are in the valley and Philistines are in the village. And three warriors sneak through, taking it to whoever they've got to take it to. In fact, I, I, I found myself imagining it, once they got to the well, what did they do? One, one of them had to be holding a cup to fill it with water and the other guys had their swords out. And then they fight their way back 12 and a half miles. I don't think any king's worth that, to tell you the truth. But they love David. What made the discontented love David so much? It's because David really understood how terribly broken he was too. Before he went into this cave that he's referring to now, David had been responsible for a deceit that brought the destruction of a whole village. The village of Nob would be wiped out by Saul because David lied to the residents of Nob. He's carrying on him at this time the death of 85 priests all their families, and the whole village. David knew that he was just about as bad as bad could be. But here's the other thing David knew. Somehow God would be with him. God would forgive him. And God will forgive all misfits. And I think that's part of what drew such leaders around him. As he saw himself for who he was, and he just believed that God could be in everything. I mean, when David wakes up in the morning, he thinks of God. When David is in the middle of the day, he's writing songs to God. When David is, is going to war, he prays to God. He sees the invisible in the visible. And having a person like that around just kind of makes you like him. He gave them hope. So they go out and do that for him. And they bring back the water. And here's what I thought the Bible would say then. I thought the Bible would then say, And David drank the water happily and thanked his men for getting it. Don't you think, if I was writing it, that's what I would do. That's why I'm not a very good novelist. Look what happens. They brought the water back to David. Second half of verse 16 but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out. What? They bring him water, and he pours it out. But I didn't finish the verse, did I? He pours it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord. See, he's always talking to God. Far be it from me, God, to do this. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? I'm imagining that David takes the water and he holds it. And we have his prayer. Oh, Lord, far be it from me. Could this not have been 
the blood of my men spilled to attain this? And the best way he could honor his heroes was to say, guys, this is too precious for me. And he pours it out as an offering to the Lord. Was he sad? Yes. Was he disillusioned? Yes. Was he losing hope? Yes. Did his men know that? Yes. Did they go get him the water? Yes. But in that act of love, David's own heart starts to rise again. And he holds on to God. And he'll come out of that cave. And the warriors will come with him. And they will push back the Philistines. And they will be in 50 years in charge of that land. They'll have it. But that is not the end of the story. You've heard Pastor Rob say so eloquently that when we talk about David, we're always wanting to point to the one greater than David and how everything in the scriptures points to the greater one. His name was Jesus. So listen to me now because when this hit me this week out of this passage, it blew my mind. The warriors bring water to David, living water that would refresh him. And when David looks at the water, he essentially says, this could have been my men's blood. And he pours out the living water to honor God on behalf of his men. A thousand years from that event forward, Jesus Christ, David's greater son, will see the distress and the discontent and the sorrows of the world. But he will pour out his blood, not water, in order that the living water that he offers could be available for the whole world. In that act of David pouring out the living water because it could have been blood, we foreshadow and look ahead to the Jesus who will pour out his own lifeblood and then rise from the dead and be the living water for all who are in the caves of life. Wow! Even in the cave of Adullam, we see Jesus. And that's where I want to end today. I want to say to you, maybe you feel like you're a cave dweller right now. And nothing's going right. And everything is off and kiltered. And you wish life wasn't this hard. I just want to say to you, you are not alone. There is a mighty warrior whose name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is for you. He proved it by pouring out his blood. And then when he rises, he is the living water that fills us, that gives us hope, that keeps on going. Christ, the mighty warrior of our mighty God. Pray with me, please. So unto you, Lord, I commit my life and our lives again. Lord, the pictures of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, 
the story of David and his mighty men. And most of all, that you would take up the blood and you would pour it out for the forgiveness of sins for the whole world and you would rise from the dead to be our mighty warrior, my mighty warrior. Oh Lord, bring your good news to my fellow cave dwellers this morning. Amen.